Hey there, I'm Marjorie Stiegler, and you're listening to the Career Prescription Podcast, where we tackle the important things they don't teach you in medical school, like how to treat your career like the business it really is, with strategies to accelerate the kind of success that you want, because you deserve a career you love and a career that loves you back. Are you ready? Let's get into it. Hey there, welcome back. It is another episode of The Career Prescription. Today we're answering the very common question that I get from many, many students, particularly of Industry Insider, uh, but a discussion all the time for physicians considering promotions and new job tracks is what to look for in your new job offer or how to evaluate your contract. So I'm looking at this separate from compensation. I have other uh, episodes on considerations around total compensation packages and things like that. But today I'm really going to focus on the question of, you know, when you're looking at that contract in hand, what are some of the things that are most important? Hey, but before we go on, I want to give you some exciting, exciting news that my course Industry Insider now is accredited for up to 12 CME credits, the ones that you have to earn each year and report for uh, your ongoing licensure and certification. So I'm super excited. My program will show you how to land an exciting and impactful role as a physician in the world of pharma, biotech, or medical devices, uh, and a program on how to do that even if you think you're not qualified. That's almost everybody. Uh, Even if you think you're not qualified, you don't have any connections, you're concerned about a pay cut, uh, my program will give you all the answers you need to set you on that path. So 12 CME credits, come check it out. And of course, I'll have that link right in the show notes for you. Okay, back to the show. Uh, first and foremost, I have to say I'm not an attorney. And if you're looking at a, at a contract for uh, employment, you should probably have it reviewed by an attorney so that you can be sure you fully understand it, even if you can't change it. That's one of the objections that I hear a lot of the time is, well, you know, it's it's like just standard. They won't change it anyway. So why should I have someone review it? I just think it's important for you to understand it in its entirety. So the first thing I recommend that you give some consideration to are the dates that you're talking about for your start date. This is important, of course, because you want to consider if there's any reason you should extend your last day at the job that you're leaving. And this could be for a number of reasons. It could be because you have an upcoming bonus that you want to qualify for, uh, that you have vesting in retirement or stock or something else uh, that's coming up imminently. You might just have some projects, some important projects that you'd like to see uh, through to the end. So project completion is another one. And of course, to honor the expected notice that your current employer has. This might be a contractual obligation, or it might just be a norm. And I know in academic and clinical medicine, it's often considerable. I mean, it might be several months. So really important to refresh yourself on what's expected so that you can leave on a good note without burning any bridges. The other thing you may want to consider is, do you have an opportunity to take some time off entirely? before you start your new job. So this will depend on a number of factors. One, of course, being how soon they want you to start. The other being how much notice you have to give. So sort of how long you you have to wait that's not within your control. But is it possible for you to take a week or longer uh, just for yourself to just take a break in between? This is a really great opportunity if your finances allow it. And if, you know, the the needs of your prior employer and your future employer 
sort of work out where you may be able to take a nice chunk of time off that doesn't need uh, to count against vacation or anything like that. And it can be a great way to kind of reset and refresh before embarking on something new. Okay, number two, looking at that contract, really important. If there's any variable or incentivized parts of your compensation plan, be sure that you understand how you qualify, right? So if you have some kind of a bonus, be sure you understand how it's calculated or how it's awarded. Uh, If you have some other kind of variable or incentivized compensation, be sure that it's really transparent and clear. I mean, this should be able to be written down and ideally referenced in a policy of what you need to do in order to achieve that full compensation and on what metrics you would be evaluated. Um, And also whether there's any sort of restriction on the opportunity to do so. So when I think about, you know, a, um, a clinical practice, a lot of places have incentivized extra call, but there's only but so much call to go around. So it's not as if you can count on uh, taking all of the incentivized call. You will have colleagues who want that call as well. So just be sure that you understand it. And the same is true for uh, other types of bonuses in non-clinical work. This is an area in which I've seen some people be burned in the past because they have been told, you know, here is your base salary, here is, you know, your potential bonus. And because they haven't really been clear on what the requirements are to achieve that bonus, and sometimes the requirements are company performance and not just individual performance, some people have found that they haven't they haven't been given that full bonus and perhaps not because they underperformed and they didn't realize how it was calculated and how it was awarded. So they had an expectation uh, in their finances were planning for having that full bonus amount. So again, just be sure that you understand how that works. All right. The third thing I think is really important to look at in the contract. And again, I'm not an attorney. You need one of those for yourself, but there are, uh, and there are lots of things you should look at in your contract, but especially put an eye on any restrictive clauses that are in your contract. So this could include uh, a non-compete Non-competes, I think, are very important. They usually specify that if you leave a company or organization that you can't go and do um, work in the exact same way for a direct competitor. Is, and, but you know how they phrase it, it could be very broad or it could be uh, fairly niche. But in today's modern world where a lot of companies, including clinical entities, span across multiple states, you've got to really think carefully about what the non-compete might mean for you uh, and whether you would be able to have the opportunity to have that personal growth, to go on to another place, take another position. You know, what does that really look like? Part of that, I think that's especially important too, is each state has its own uh, laws about how enforceable a non-compete can be or how broad it can be or how narrow. And you want to be sure that you understand what state law is governing the contract Because again, as many of these entities span across multiple states, it might not be the state in which you live. So I've had a client with that same experience just quite recently, where the the non-compete seemed extraordinarily broad. It seemed like this was going to be very, very hard uh, if the person ever wanted to move on to a different place to do similar work and not direct competitor work, but just basically the, the kind of work for which they were hired, very, very broad. And according to their state, it would be unenforceable, according to what they said their attorney, uh, their attorney's interpretation was, that it would be too broad to be enforceable in their state. 
But the the twist or the complexity is, you know, whether the contract states that it's governed by laws outside of the person's state. So anyway, again, this is the, this is the reason why it gets complicated and why you'll want to have an attorney take a look at it if there's anything like that. The other thing I think is important within looking at restrictive clauses is any outside activities. Because many, many of my uh, students and, and myself, like a lot of people that I know uh, also, do things outside of their primary position and they earn income that way. So some examples of that, of course, might be any type of side gig that you have. It might be getting paid for professional speaking events. As you know, that's a big thing on my radar, especially with the speaking prescription. Great, great way to establish thought leadership and uh, have a nice additional income stream. Some people are involved in all kinds of passive income stream type of activities. Some people sit on boards either of nonprofits or of other corporate entities, right? That can be quite lucrative as well um, and a really great way to continue to learn more and get greater depth. I have uh, two podcast episodes that you can check out about getting on a corporate board. So with all these various things in mind, you know, if there's any way other than your employed position in which you expect to earn money, you want to be clear on whether or not there's any limitations on your outside activities. And that could be in terms of doing, you know, locums work as well, right? Anything that uh, could be perceived as a conflict of interest, you know, understanding whether there are restrictions on that. And if there are, understanding what the policies are that govern them, right? Is it just a simple matter of having to uh, engage with HR to establish that there's no direct conflict of interest? And if so, you document it and then you're fine to go. Or is it that you can do none? Or is it a matter of you can do anything you want only outside of these specific business hours? So again, just to be sure that you are clear, you you want to understand what you're getting into and what kind of limitations uh, you are agreeing to. And then the fourth thing I'll mention that I think is very important, uh, particularly for contracts that are really brief, as, as some of them are, is to understand what is policy and what is manager discretion. So I think this is this is very important because as you're interviewing, you're obviously meeting with the person who will be your boss among the people that you're meeting. And if certain things are up to your boss's discretion, you want to understand how your boss feels about that and how they will interpret it. So for many people in industry, some of this might be uh, outside clinical activity because we all, you know, consider and many people like to continue a small amount of volunteer or paid clinical activity. You want to understand what the policy around that is. And if it's up to your manager, you want to understand how they feel about it, what kind of limitations they would put on that, if any. Uh, and just to be just to be clear, I have a client who was recently presented with a job offer where it's stated right in the contract that currently the policy is they have unlimited paid time off. So that's right there in black and white, unlimited paid time off. What does that mean? If you were to take that to the extreme, that would mean you never need to go into work and you would be paid, right? And you would do nothing. But of course, that's not their intent. It's subject to manager discretion to approve that time. So while there's no formal limit on how much you can take, it'd be really important to understand your future boss's point of view on what is the norm, what's the expectation. This is also true for flexible working arrangements, which are increasingly common, um, particularly with COVID. And I think a lot of that is going to stick around even as we emerge from COVID. A little bit of flexibility in terms of work hours or when you're expected to be available. Uh, really, really important to get clear on that kind of thing. And 
um, especially things that are dependent upon manager discretion. Obviously, you want to understand their expectations and norms, but you have to realize those things can change and they can change rapidly if you get a new boss. And that can happen and in fact does happen, especially in the corporate world with a fair amount of frequency. So that may not be something that you can count on. Uh, you know, it, it might be a boss dependent. It might be something you should try to get in writing that that has, is part of the agreement so that you can at least show that to your future boss for them to consider honoring. But th- these are all some things I would really, really want to pay attention to. What's policy and what's manager discretion and how is that interpreted? This is also an excellent time uh, to talk to the HR folks because they'll be involved you know, in these hiring conversations um, about various policy documents and where you can find them, how you can get your hands on them. Obviously, keep a copy of the contract that you sign so that you can reference it in the future when you're thinking about other activities or potentially moving on. But it's a really, really great time to get all the information that you can that's available sort of internally that is HR type of information that a lot of people just they don't know that it exists and they have never asked for it. And so therefore, they're a little bit in the dark about things like what we've already talked about and how is variable compensation calculated, that bonus that we talked about, uh, what are some of the restrictive clauses. You know, if you're asking that question because you're considering moving on, it's, it, you can still ask that question, but it's nice to have the information at hand instead of needing to find it at the time that you're trying to consider a change, right? Have that on hand. Uh, other things like paid time off and vacation, as well as possibly severance pay and other things like that, usually are, I mean, they're rooted in some kind of a policy and those policies are usually available to employees internally, but sometimes they're not that easy to find. And at the time that you're considering your contract and you're having discussions with HR anyway, it's a really great time to try to get details on all of these things. And it's, of course, very appropriate for you to get details on all of these things that you're agreeing to within the contract. So um, there are many, many others. And again, I'm not an attorney. None of this is legal advice. You should probably get a contract lawyer to review what you're looking at. But in summary, again, I recommend considering the dates, both with your prior employer and your future employer, and whether you may have an opportunity for some time off in the middle there, thinking about clarity on variable and incentivized compensation, thinking about any restrictive clauses like a non-compete or outside activities that you might be doing at the same time, and understanding what's policy and what's manager discretion so that you can be sure you understand the norms and the expectations. And if possible, if there's something outside the scope of the contract to see if it can be put in writing, even if not in the contract, even in just an email, like a a memo of, of understanding between you and your manager that might help you Uh, have some consistency there, even if there's internal change and you end up with a new boss. So I hope that's helpful for you as you consider new and exciting opportunities that are going to be in front of you for your consideration. Again, whether you can change them or not, I don't know, that will depend. Uh, But always, always critically important to understand what you're signing up for. That's it for today. Bye for now. Before you go, please review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Your support makes all the difference, and it truly helps this information reach someone who may really need it. Until next time, thanks for listening.